There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch with Greg Kraminski and Colin Andrews. Greg, good to have you back in the seat. Yeah, great to be back. Steve did a great job last week. Yeah, last week we focused on the bond market in Warren Buffett's annual letter to investors, where he stated that the fixed income market is not the place to be these days and that debt investors have a bleak future. That's kind of a powerful statement, but we had Alex Heron join us from PIMCO to discuss this. And it was a great conversation, and I encourage those that didn't have a chance to listen to it yet to do so, especially any people who question the validity of investing in fixed income. But today we're changing gears, going from investment management questions to a discussion on philanthropy. Philanthropy. You know, I've always considered the idea of charitable giving an extension of the values people hold, and I guess not just people, but corporations as well. But this means that it should be part of any financial plan that we go through, and especially when we're talking about estate planning. And some people, many people are willing to give part of their savings or part of their time to causes they believe in, and and that's a direct reflection of its importance. People volunteer, people want to continue to support various organizations even after they can't help out in person, i.e. through part of their estate. So I think this is some, one of the things that we focus on with clients and we want to focus more on with clients to help them uh, with that. So today we have Chris Putnam Walkerly joining us. Chris is a philanthropy expert. I find philanthropy to be a hard word to say. We'll get into that maybe in the show, but she's the author of Delusional Altruism and was named one of America's top 25 philanthropy speakers. She's been featured in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Forbes, Variety, and now the pinnacle of her career on the Free Lunch podcast. (laughs) Chris, welcome to Free Lunch. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. Chris, first of all, just tell us, where are you joining us from today? I am joining you from sunny Cleveland, Ohio in the U.S. Cleveland, Ohio. Well, great. Uh, that's you're practically Canadian. You're just across the uh, just across the lake. <laughs> there you go. Well, Chris, why don't you just start by you know tell us your story? How did you end up where you are today? I am a philanthropy advisor, and I ended up here through a somewhat circuitous route. I did start my career in the nonprofit sector, though. I actually was working at a nonprofit in San Francisco, California, that was trying to change U.S. policy in Central America at the time and support human rights organizations. And interestingly, although I didn't realize it at the time, that job really was what set me on my career to 25 or so years later, write the book Delusional Altruism, which I know we'll talk about in a little bit. But just to tell you a brief story, and then I'll continue. At the time, this was the 1990-91, if you will recall, the brand spanking new technology of the day was the fax machine. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we used faxes then, you know, like we use social media today to get the word out quickly and help encourage people to call their congressperson, call their legislator, show up for a demonstration, whatever it might be. And we thought faxes were so important that we decided we actually couldn't afford a fax machine of our own. 
we had to give all the money we raised to support people in Central America. So instead, we borrowed the fax machine of an organization 10 blocks away. So every day, we would take our pieces of paper and walk 10 blocks, which was an hour round trip there and back to send faxes. And we did this every day, every week, all throughout the year. A few years later, I was on my first delegation to Central America to deliver aid to the organizations we were supporting. And we open the door, walk in, and what do I see? A ginormous fax machine, right? (laughs) This thing was faxed, it copied, it collated, it stapled, it practically made the coffee. And I was really stunned. I thought, well, how could this organization that's relying on international donations that we were bringing uh, afford a fax machine when we couldn't afford one ourselves, or so we thought? And so I asked the executive director, and he said, well, you know, we rely on faxes to get the word out. Like, this is a really important technology for us. Of course, we have a fax machine. It was my, you know, first recognition of kind of being delusional in your altruism. You know, we thought we were making a difference and doing the right thing by giving away all the money we were raising. We weren't investing in ourselves. And a fax machine back then probably cost, I don't know, $900, $1,000. So what if we had bought that for $1,000 and instead use that hour every day to, I don't know, fundraise, (laughs) you know, like call donors to raise more money. We could have raised a lot more money. So it was a great introduction really to me. I didn't quite realize it at the time in kind of the scarcity mindset that I think is actually pervasive in philanthropy and the whole notion of delusional altruism. So after that job, I decided to get a master's in social work. And I thought that I was going to run nonprofit social service agencies. But I took some classes in evaluation while I was in grad school and learned really the importance of assessing the impact of nonprofit organizations to see what was working, what wasn't working, and how to improve it. And decided then to go work at Stanford University. And I evaluated youth and gang violence prevention programs. And this was all funded by one foundation in California, the California Wellness Foundation. And I thought that was very intriguing. You know, if you're a donor, if you're a foundation, you have wealth. And if you use that wealth effectively, bring in the right experts to guide you and focus on best practices and models that are working, then you can really make a difference. And then I decided to work for a foundation. So I worked at the David and Lucille Packard Foundation, which is the family foundation of Dave Packard of HP, and learned that I love philanthropy. And then soon after that, started consulting. Actually, Charles Schwab's Family Foundation was my first client and have been advising and consulting in philanthropy ever since. That's a pretty cool link to go from, uh, well, to do your master's degree in social work. And actually, before I go on that topic, our podcast is called Free Lunch. And free lunch in economic terms refers to opportunity cost. And so your opportunity cost when you were with that organization walking 10 blocks each way to send each fax. I guess you figured out equated to, well, we could just buy our own fax machine and save an hour a day and just hit more people. But it's kind of cool to me that you linked this master's degree in social work in the work that you're doing now. It sounds like quite a niche, like or niche, as you might say, that you found yourself in. Where do you see it going from here? Yeah, you know, my work has really evolved. And now I am helping, you know, I work with philanthropists of all kinds. So what does that mean? It means high net worth donors, ultra high net worth donors and families. It means leaders of foundations, which could be family foundations or private foundations, community foundations, corporate giving programs, 
some of my clients are Fortune 500 companies. And really, it's all about helping them to give effectively, to help them gain the clarity that they need to have the greatest impact on whatever cause or issue or community that they care about. And so mostly I work now as a trusted advisor. My clients retain me to kind of be their sounding board to help guide them on their philanthropic journey, whatever they're trying to accomplish. Or they bring me on as a kind of a strategist to help them create a giving plan or develop their strategic plan so that they have clarity on what they're trying to accomplish. And then we look at, well, where are you today, given what you're trying to do? And how do we get you from where you are today to where you want to be ideally as quickly as possible? And so I continue to do that. My work has expanded globally. I write extensively, including for Forbes and then this book, Delusional Altruism, I just published. I really strive to, to me, it's kind of like macro, macro social work, right? Because I'm helping the funder that's supporting the nonprofit, non-governmental organization to help people be that ending homelessness or food security or access to health care or mental health, whatever the issue is. And so, you know, I really believe in the mission of what I'm trying to do. Well, that's great. And maybe uh, before we get into some specific uh, discussion, what would you say is the role of philanthropy in society? Why do we do this? Why do you and your, the companies you work with or the individuals do it? I'd say a couple of things. One is, you know, certainly because we care about humanity, you know, at a very basic level, I think the importance of philanthropy is to give back. And philanthropy isn't just about giving money. I believe it's about, you know, I think we're all, we're all philanthropists if we give in a variety of ways, if we give of our time as volunteers, the talents that we have, certainly financially, but we can also give in terms of, you know, the connections and introductions that we can make and the ways that we really show up in the community and in the world. And so I think simply because we care about each other and and our future, that that's really, quite frankly, reason enough. But interestingly, I think philanthropy in many ways is the risk capital of the world. And there's a lot of ways that philanthropic dollars, these private dollars can be used to really kind of be the R&D arm of society in, in many ways, you know, like be that kind of first money in, try new ideas, test models and approaches. If it doesn't work, then that's okay. You've learned. And then what do we do differently? And how do we modify and keep going? You know, I mean, one example of this, and to say that because, you know, philanthropy can step in often where government can't or won't. So one example, and I'm going to be forgetting his name, but there was a man in the 1950s in the East Coast of the U.S., who was both a philanthropist and a researcher, and he lived alongside or nearby a very windy highway. And back then, there was only kind of one line down the middle of the highway, the highway preventing, you know, separating the two lanes. There was not a a white line on the side of the highway that we're used to today. And so this particular stretch of highway, there were lots of crashes, lots of fatalities, especially at dawn and dusk when the light wasn't very bright. And so he had a hypothesis that if you painted a white line on the side of the highway, that people's eyes would gravitate to the right away from the center of the road, and that would prevent crashes. So he was able to finagle the ability to close some section of the highway. He tested this, lo and behold, there were fewer crashes and fewer fatalities. And so he kept that going and you know, used his philanthropic dollars to advocate to local government and ultimately federal government. And really that became why we have white lines in the side of the road. 
and think of the, you know, probably millions of lives saved since then. And so I think, you know, it's that ability to try and test new things that somebody else might not be paying attention to. It might not be the priority or for political and other kinds of bureaucratic reasons, you know, government's not going to step in. Interesting. So certainly uh, I like your uh, thinking of it as risk capital because you're right. I mean, governments, whether it's, you know, directly or through university funding or what have you, just can't support everything and every new idea and everything that's geared towards doing something great in the world. Yeah, let me ask you if this is a generational thing, though, in that the younger generations seem to be really focused on things like ESG in our world, environment, social, and governance. And I think philanthropy sort of falls into that modified mindset where it's not just all about how much money can I grow as myself and be ultra wealthy, but more about how can I help others? Like, how do you see the changes in philanthropic giving over the last several years? And how do you see them going over the next, I don't know, 5, 10, 20 years? There certainly, I think, are generational differences. And I think, you know, increasingly today, people are thinking about how do we bring all of our assets to bear on solving social problems and tackling social problems? And so that could mean as a person, as I mentioned before, it's not just, you know, giving your money away, but it's also volunteering. It's also gosh, I know a lot about scaling a business. I could help a nonprofit scale, or I know about, I'm an accountant, so I could help a nonprofit with their accounting. But also I think as a company, it's thinking about, and as an investor, thinking about all of your assets and how do you deploy all of your assets in service of social good. That can be philanthropic, you know, assets and investing, if you will, but it can also be, you know, the assets you have, how they're invested in the market, thinking about, you know, mission-driven investing, and sustainability of the footprint of the company and the impact that they're having on the world in terms of supply chain or products and services, as well as governance, you know, and thinking about who's involved, you know, who's in charge, who's involved, and how do we ensure that as a company or even as a person, as an investor, that we're thinking about the entirety of what we have to offer and how we're aligning it toward mission-driven goals and really ideally purpose, you know, corporate purpose and our purpose as people and as uh, the missions of our families and family foundations and whatnot. So, you know, I think increasingly people are looking at these wide variety of tools that we have really to create change or push change. I do think, you know, next generation in terms of people in family philanthropy have challenges, right? If the donor is, are the parents and it's sort of their business or it's their money or it's, you know, their way or the highway in terms of giving, then I think for younger people, which don't have to be young, I mean, it could be people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, or the second generation are often trying to figure out their role in giving uh, vis-a-vis the family or maybe the family business, family firm, and what that means in terms of shared values or differing opinions or competing interests of what issues and causes that they care about. So you're touching on uh, something I wanted to ask you about, and we can maybe dig into it a little further. You wrote a chapter in the Impact Assets Handbook for Investors, and it was titled Transformational Giving, Philanthropy as an Investment in Change. And you just talked a little bit about that. And I'm just wondering, like, can we dig into it a little bit further? Because, you know, a lot of people that we talk to or deal with think of philanthropy as, as something that's left over. It's kind of when you've done everything else, then if there's anything left over, we can talk about giving. And in your chapter, you talk more about having a mission and vision for 
your philanthropic giving, whether it's an individual or a corporation? And how can individuals start thinking about philanthropy in larger terms as opposed to, as I say, more transactional follow-on terms? Yeah. So a couple of thoughts on that. One is there's kind of a common notion that throughout your life, lifetime, there's different phases that you learn, earn, and return. So, you know, early in your life in high school, university, you're learning, and maybe early in your career, you're really learning. And then as you get older, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, you're earning your wealth. And then as you retire, that time is when you return, meaning you return some of that wealth back to the community in terms of philanthropy. And that kind of gets on what you were saying, Greg, about waiting until the end with what's left over. Think about giving that back. And I think that's an unfortunate way to approach it because the, you know, the learn, earn, return approach, because I think we have as people, you know, again, so much to offer throughout our lifetimes. And so to think about people who are maybe starting businesses and yeah, that's a challenging time, but how do you incorporate giving back into the development of your business and not sort of waiting until the end till there's maybe a sale and there's some extra money left over to give away, but how could you encourage, you know, your employees to give, engage your employees in charitable causes, do matching gifts and things of that nature? Or how can you as a person, because you're super knowledgeable and you're learning, contribute, serve on boards of directors and give back earlier in your career? How do you, you know, as a young person, figure out which issues and causes you care about and how you give and how you get engaged. So I think, you know, also at all those stages of life, we have so much to offer and learn. And I think by participating in philanthropy early, not only do we have a longer lifespan in which to give, but we also have a lot of learning opportunities so that we can improve as philanthropists along the way. Again, regardless of what scale you're giving at, if it's $1,000 a year or $100,000 a year or a a billion, let's just say. <laughs> so there's that. I also think your point on transaction versus transformation is really important because we can all write checks or you know issue payments to organizations, and a lot of you know wealth advisors can facilitate that for their clients. But that's the transaction of the gift. You know, you can start a donor advised fund. That's a transaction. But I think transformation is really about getting clarity for yourself as a person, as a donor or investor, as to what kind of change you want to see in the world. And so I really encourage my clients to ask questions that start with the word what, such as, what kind of change do I want to see in my community? What kind of impact do I want to have or do I want my family to have? What kind of philanthropist do I want to be? What kind of philanthropic family do we want to become? And then look at where are you today? And that could be anything. It could be, I have no clue. You know, I've never thought about this before. Or it could be like, well, we've been giving to various causes in our community kind of out of obligation. Our friends asked us to donate or we, whatever. Or it could be, you know, I have a passion for mental health because it's affected my family and I really want to, I care about this. But really looking at where you want to be and where are you today and like, how do you get from where you are today to where you want to be and creating some kind of a, like a giving plan. It could be, gosh, I care about lots of issues in our community. I'm not quite sure which ones to focus on. So you could start by thinking about your values, your family's values. Are there issues that have been important to you in your lifetime or in your family 
that are meaningful to you? Are you seeing certain trends or problems or needs in your community that really strike you as important that you want to support? And you can simply, you know, kind of pick a few of them and identify, learn more about those issues, identify maybe some organizations that you could support, or even in a lot of cases, there's things happening throughout a community or a city that you can be part of. Like, for example, here in Cleveland, one of the issues in the United States, at least, is early childhood education or the lack of quality early childhood education before kindergarten. And so making sure that especially low-income families have access to that kind of learning so that they arrive to kindergarten ready to learn, they know how to read, et cetera. And so in Cleveland, Ohio, where I live, you know, there's a whole effort between the school district and various foundations and donors and local government to have a coordinated plan to ensure that every three and four-year-old in Cleveland has access to high-quality preschool. And so if that's an issue you care about, you might find that there's other like-minded people in your community and you can contribute to that and really leverage your own resources. Maybe you have $5,000 to give, but others have 50,000 and you can kind of contribute and leverage and have a greater impact that way. Well, that's interesting. And one of the things that you talk about large organizations that you consult with is finding a way to evaluate how your giving is contributing, how it's being done. And I wonder for the individual donors who, as you say, even if they're finding causes in their own neighborhoods or their communities, I'm wondering if your suggestions, like if it would be more meaningful if they got to know the people, the organizations to whom they're gifting, as opposed to here's a check for $1,000 and it's just gone and you have no feedback. That feedback loop I would see as being something fairly critical to encouraging that activity to become more of a, an annual or a life goal as opposed to just a one-time writing a check. Absolutely. I think it's really important to build relationships with nonprofit organizations, with the leaders of those organizations as a donor, both to learn so that, you know, you have a better understanding of the organization and what they're doing, but also so that you can show up in meaningful and helpful ways when there's a crisis. Like, let's just take, imagine there was a global pandemic. What? Wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. That sounds far-fetched, but okay. <laughs> right. So back in March, nonprofits of every kind went into a state of panic. And, you know, had to respond in obviously very different ways. And some of them, it was because what they provided was so sorely needed, like let's say a food bank or food pantry. And another is because it dramatically changed their business model, like a, a museum, right? That was relying on ticket sales for their revenue and suddenly no one was allowed in the building. And so what is most helpful in those times, and quite frankly, just during regular times, is for a a relationship for the donor, literally to know the executive director, the executive director to know their donors, and for a donor to call or email or text or whatever and say, hey, we want to help. What do you need? But if you don't know that person, you're not likely going to do that. The opposite is true. For the, A lot of nonprofit leaders were terrified to call their donors, to call their actual existing supporters during the crisis, the immediate uh, lockdown, because they were afraid. They were afraid of bothering them. They were afraid, you know, this is a crisis that affected everybody. They were afraid of, you know, well, maybe we're not quite the most needy. We're not quite the most 
front line of, of the organizations? Should we bother them? But really, they needed the funding to be able to pivot and respond in meaningful ways. And so that relationship is really important and it needs to be built. And you don't just create a relationship, you know, like dating, right? You don't just like, doesn't magically happen. You have to build it over time and trust each other. But I think that's really important. And you might be wondering, how do you do that? Well, you can do that by showing up in person or virtual galas or by paying attention, reading the materials of the organization scheduling calls or site visits when that can happen again to learn more about the group. But I think another surprise, something that might be surprising to your listeners about assessing impact is that there's a really common myth that is super pervasive. And it is that an organization is effective if it has very, very, very low overhead. There's the whole notion of like, I'm only going to support an organization when 99 cents of every dollar goes to the program and only one cent goes to administration and overhead. And to me, that's a scarcity mindset, not unlike what I talked about earlier of like, how could we possibly buy our own fax machine? All the money has to go help people in Central America because like a business, nonprofit organizations need to invest in themselves. And I think really it was this crisis showed us that any organization, nonprofit or for-profit, the stronger they were going into the crisis, the better able they were to navigate and pivot and innovate even through it and will emerge much stronger. Weaker organizations that hadn't invested in their technology, talent, research and development, innovation, communications were the ones and continue to be the ones that are suffering and struggling. And so that infrastructure, those systems, you know, require investment and that means money. And if you believe in a cause, and there's an organization you think it's doing a great job as a donor, don't you want them to have the best talent, a good financial management systems, a great board of directors, the ability to evaluate themselves and make changes? Like, of course you do. You want them to be strong, but you have to recognize that that involves investment. And so as a donor, actually contributing to helping them with strategic planning or the ability to do an evaluation, I think is a huge contribution in their capacity so that they can do the most good in the world. I was just thinking back to last March, because you brought it up. It's your fault for bringing it up, so I'm going to talk about it for a minute. Just this idea of a multiplier effect, in that uh, when there's excess supply of money in the world, it tends to go to causes. It's a multiplier effect. And when capital dries up in the world, it seems to me that those causes obviously don't get that capital. So it's a a reverse multiplier. And I'm sure if you think back to last March, as you said, a lot of your uh, philanthropic organizations or charities were wondering what is going to happen. I mean, that must have been a really scary time. It was a very scary time for most everybody, really. But, you know, for nonprofits, often they don't have more than three months of cash on hand to survive. Often the people that run nonprofits are in it for the mission and don't necessarily have the skills or financial savvy to pivot through it. And it's a cyclical problem because of that lack of investment. As donors are kind of expecting nonprofits to survive on a shoestring, consequently, they don't have enough money often, not all of them, some of them are very well resourced, but don't have enough money to hire top talent or retain them, pay competitive wages. And so, you know, don't often have that investment. And then, you know, often they're relying on boards of directors 
And I'm here to tell you, there were a lot of boards of directors that were MIA during the crisis and not there for the nonprofits that they serve. And so they didn't really, you know, a lot of leaders didn't have the guidance that they needed or the help that they needed. And that was unfortunate. And I think another thing is, again, just to make the point of we bring more than money as philanthropists, as donors, is one of the ways that a leader, a donor could help a nonprofit during the crisis was literally to introduce them to their banker. Because a lot of nonprofits, of course, they have checking accounts at banks, but they don't necessarily have relationships. They have an 800 number to call. And so when you're contemplating applying for federal aid, which I'm not quite sure what the situation was in Canada, but here there were options for getting grant uh, federal loans. A lot of these nonprofits didn't really know how to do that or if it was a good idea, what the consequences would be. And literally didn't have anyone to call at their bank. There was the teller. <laughs> there was the 800 number. And, you know, just by making that introduction as a business leader, here's my banker. Why don't you talk to them? That could have made it all the difference in the world. For sure. Interesting. Hey, um, just one last question in this section. And I think we should probably wrap up this section with it. Is I want you to talk to us. Tell us about your new book. What is Delusional Altruism? Why, thank you. Um, yes, delusional altruism, why philanthropists fail to achieve change and what they can do to transform giving. And really, it's a book about how donors are genuine in their altruism. They really want to make a difference and change the world, but are getting in their own way. And they're actually preventing themselves from achieving the impact that they want to have, but often don't even realize that. And so I wrote the book really based on 20 years of advising donors and watching them make these same mistakes over and over again. And I wanted to help them realize how this was happening and also what they can do differently to have a more transformational impact on whatever issue or cause they care about by really changing how they give. And so some examples I've mentioned that scarcity mindset, you know, by not investing in the nonprofits, you know, truly investing in what they actually need to succeed, or even as a donor, like not investing in yourself, meaning not investing in your own learning, in your own advising, even, and so that you can be the best philanthropist to have the greatest impact. Another is fear. A lot of donors feel very fearful. They fear kind of coming out in support of a cause sometimes because they worry about the backlash of what will people think, or they worry about being kind of out and about in the community and people knowing that they are have wealth and are giving and being asked for money, or they fear disappointing people. It's hard to say no to a nonprofit that asks for money. And there's a lot of fear and that holds them back. Another one is they just don't have a strategy. They don't have a plan. And when you don't know where you're going, it's hard to get there. And so I think often by not having clarity on what you're trying to accomplish with your philanthropic giving, it's easy to get pulled into all the different kinds of directions. And I call that donor distraction disorder, where your friend says, can you contribute to this? And someone else says, hey, can you buy a table for this event? And then, and on and on it goes. And you're giving, giving, giving and doing stuff, but it isn't really aligned toward what you want to accomplish. And you might not even be sure yet what you want to accomplish. And that doesn't feel very gratifying. So I write about that and, you know, different, very practical ways that philanthropists can change and make some changes, which includes, you know, starting with the right questions and increasing their speed, actually, clarifying their strategies and implementing them. And, you know, that's challenging, I think, especially during all the crises we've been experiencing in the past year. And there's a resource that might be of interest to your listeners. 
It's called Eight Things Every Philanthropist Can Do to Change the World, Even When the World Keeps Changing. And it's a free guide I wrote really to help philanthropists kind of plan ahead, even when conditions all around us keep changing. And it starts by changing your mindset. And it's a very practical guide. So if it would be of interest to your listeners, you can text the word PLAN2021 to, from Canada, plus one nine oh nine. 741-1321. So that's text the word plan 2021 to the number plus one nine oh nine seven four one one three two one. Or if you're in the US, then text it to four one one three two one. And that's just a free resource that I think will be really helpful to offer some guidance as to how you can create that giving plan, create that, you know, any kind of plan you need. When it feels like, gosh, conditions keep changing, how do I even make decisions? Because it's going to change again. Well, great. And for people that are interested in your new book, uh, Amazon, how do they find your book? Absolutely. Yes, Amazon. And you can also go to delusionalaltruism.com. And that will provide the links to all the places where it's available, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and many other places. That's great. But Greg, we're, we're not promoting Amazon as a stock pick. We're of just saying not. this is where you'll find the book, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Exactly. Okay. okay. Should we move on to our speed round and wrap it up here? Sure. Yeah? Let's do that. Now, just as a reminder, this is just for fun, Chris, so there's no pressure on this. We'll start with some easy ones. What do you do for fun when you're not working, when you're not consulting and writing? I'm on our boat oh. on Lake Erie. Very nice. Desperately trying to get to Canada. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a big lake, but you're going across the short way. So you should be there in no time. Right. <laughs> and uh, what about any books that you're reading right now? When you're not writing books, what are you reading? Uh, well, I'm actually rereading a book. Uh, I have it right here. In fact, it's called Decolonizing Wealth. Oh. Which is a book I highly recommend, actually, by Edgar Villanueva. Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance. And it's a book that he wrote a few years ago, I read, and I'm rereading it now in conjunction with some work I'm doing with a client. Cool. Very good. What about any shows you're binge watching these days during a global pandemic? Anything on any of the streaming services? No, I'm usually asleep. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I have 11 year old twins, so I'm Ouch. often uh, putting them to bed and falling asleep right there with them. <laughs> I'm sure that keeps you busy. Yeah. One more, Greg, what do we got? Well, Other than the free lunch podcast, are there any podcasts that you listen to as you're driving to and from uh, wherever you're taking your kids, if nothing else? Yeah. Lately, I've been listening to the Gary V audio experience. I think that's what it's called. I can never pronounce his last, his uh, name, Gary Vernicek. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The Gary V audio experience. I don't think anybody can pronounce his last name. Fascinating. I'm learning all about NFTs and all kinds of things. So it's been a great uh, enlightening. And I'm also on Clubhouse, which has been really interesting. Not a podcast, but a new audio app. So I'm on Clubhouse, and that's been a lot of fun. Cool. Is Clubhouse, is this the uh, controversial app that I believe Elon Musk mentioned and drove the price of some unrelated Clubhouse to uh, yep. to unbelievable heights because it was misinterpreted? <laughs> I have no idea, but that would be <laughs> funny. No, that's actually, that's what happened. So Clubhouse is an app that's currently for iPhone users only, but moving to Android apparently soon. And it's audio only. And it's a big place for podcasters. So you might want to check it out. And you can follow me at Chris Putnam on Clubhouse. Excellent. 
Well, let's ask a couple of specific Canadian questions because you're going to be, our audience is going to be primarily Canadian, although there are people from around the world that do listen to it. Well, that's true. But as I mentioned earlier, being just across the lake from Turkey Point, Ontario on Lake Erie, you're practically Canadian. So you should, these should be a piece of cake for you. Well, some of them. (laughs) First one for you. Greg and I are both from Saskatchewan. We both grew up in Saskatchewan. How do you spell Saskatchewan? (laughs) (laughs) Take a stab at it. Why not? Oh, Lord. Seriously, Saskatchewan. <laughs> like my, my daughter uh, learning her spelling, Saskatchewan. I don't know. I'm not even, I'm not even Okay, go there. fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> but I am going to look it up after this podcast is over. We did this with another interviewee from New York, and I admitted I, I couldn't uh, spell Poughkeepsie either, so it's probably fair on both sides. <laughs> <laughs> what about, uh, do you ever wear a toque? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. Uh, I think, well, you might. Does it get cold in Cleveland? It does get a little chilly, yes. Do you ever wear that beanie on top of your head that has like a pom-pom at the top of it? Yes, I do. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, we refer to those beanies as toques. Toques, how do you spell it? T-U-K? Oh, I don't know how to spell toque. Now you're putting me on the spot here. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not T-U-K. It's like T-O-U-Q. T-O-Q-U-E. Yeah, Tuk. there you go. T-O-Q-U-E, exactly. Okay. Greg, you got one? Have you ever had a ketchup potato chip? I don't think so. Ketchup flavored potato chips. Only available in Canada. Can't buy them on Amazon in the U.S.? Oh, you probably could. (laughs) (laughs) You might have to go to the Amazon.ca website, though. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) Let's just do one or two more. What do you got? What is KD? KD is known as the food that every college student or university student lives on. What does KD stand for? I don't know, but if it was the U.S., it would be ramen noodles. Oh, well, pretty you're, close. You're close. So it's Kraft Dinner in Canada. Oh, yeah, of course. Kraft Macaroni and Cheese is known as Kraft Dinner and or KD. So You know, I grew up on Kraft Macaroni and Cheese. Well, didn't everybody? Hey, I, <laughs> I actually had it yesterday. It was delicious. <laughs> we have small children. <laughs> well, we do have children, and everybody likes a box of KD. Who doesn't? Well, let's wrap it up there. Thanks so much for joining us today, Chris. It was really a lot of fun. I know I learned a lot about philanthropy and philanthropic giving, and I hope that our listeners will go and check out your book and your guide, and that was great. Yeah, really appreciate it. That was a lot of very good information, and I hope that our listeners will follow up with uh, the material that you've provided and the links you've given us. So again, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And any of your listeners, if you want to learn more, if you go to delusionalaltruism.com, that links to my website with all my contact information. I'm happy to answer any questions that anyone else has. Fantastic. Thanks again. All right. Well, maybe we'll have you back again some other time. We can dig more into philanthropy. Okay. That sounds great. (laughs) Well, Greg, that was a fun conversation with Chris Putnam Walkerly. And uh, we learned a lot about philanthropy and philanthropic giving. Absolutely. And what struck me is that despite the fact that Chris obviously works with very large organizations and charitable groups, but everything applies to individual donors as well, you know. And so for a lot of our listeners, I'd certainly urge them to think about some of the things Chris talked about and maybe start thinking about making philanthropy part of their financial and estate plans. Exactly. Well, and I think that's the point is with all of this stuff, we've talked about it on many episodes. It all starts from a plan, right? Yep. So whether that's a plan to buy a house or a plan to grow your wealth or 
a plan of what to do after you've done all those things with that wealth, right? Exactly. And one of the things we didn't talk about, but certainly we'll talk about with uh, everyone as we sit down with them to do planning, is that you can do well by doing good, and that is that the government does contribute. You know, the government kicks in by giving very attractive tax benefits and tax breaks for charitable donations. And so essentially what you can do is you can, when you talk about the multiplier effect, you get more for your money in terms of contributions because of the uh, attractive tax benefits that are provided to us. So right so let's uh, we'll delve into that individually with people as we do planning. All right. Well, thanks for joining us today. Remember to follow Free Lunch. And please, if you are listening to it on Apple Podcasts or any of them that allow it, give us a rating and let us know how we're doing. And so we'll leave it at that. Until next time. Next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kreminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc. 2020.